Genre. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Emily Hayes from the graphic novel Amulet, the Stonekeeper by Kazu Kibuishi. And joining us for the discussion is returning Protagonist Podcast co-founder Todd Mack. Welcome back, Todd. It's always a pleasure to be here. So glad to have you on. Uh, for any listeners who are not familiar, Amulet the Stonekeeper tells the story of Emily Hayes and her brother Navin as they enter a strange, magical sci-fi world to try and rescue their mother who has been kidnapped. It's an interesting way to put it. <laughs> how, how, how would you describe it? <laughs> uh, eaten by a monster, but just kind of hanging out inside of You mean of the it. kidnapping. Okay, it was the kidnapping is the word. I, I thought you were talking about the strange, magical sci-fi world. No, no, no. Kidnapped. It's just... Doesn't it quite seems like what such a seems like such a pedestrian word for what actually happens to her. Uh, a Lovecraftian beast swallows their mother whole <laughs> and leaves through a portal. Yeah, and then she's just living inside of it like Geppetto. <laughs> yeah, I, that that works as well. Uh, well for we'll get there. Yeah um todd had you read amulet before um so i've always been intrigued by amulet um i think the art is really beautiful and uh and i've seen it at at our library i think i checked it out once to to kind of read it and then my son got hold of it and he read he blew through probably the first six volumes of this Mm -hmm. um which is all that we had at our library i think he thinks it's over I'm pretty sure it's still going. Right. Oh, it, it, nine will be the final volume. And I'll okay. tell you how I know that in just a moment. And then, uh, so I actually had not finished the first this first book until just this evening. But no. when when you had you you came to me and asked if there was a a comic book that I was interested in reading, and I uh, proposed this, and you said great, and so now I'm happy to say that I read it. So I have a memory of getting it from the local library for my daughter. Um, and then when I went to try and grab it, it was not available. <laughs> it was checked out. So I, I went online and I'm like, I bet my kids are going to read this. So do I just buy the one for $10 or do I get all eight for like 50? <laughs> I think mm-hmm. that's what it was. And I'm like, I think I'm just going to get all eight. And I talked to her. She's like, it's okay. If it's books for them to read, we, we can get that. So I bought those. They arrived at my house on a Monday. And my seven-year-old and my nine-year-old had read all eight by Friday. Yeah. Each. They had both read all eight. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And book eight says at the end, to be concluded in book nine <laughs> or volume ah. nine. And uh, my son let me know immediately when he finished <laughs> the eighth book that we had. Uh, Dad, where's the ninth one? I looked at him like, eh, it's not out yet. This should be sometime this year is what seems to have been implied from some posts. Okay. So hopefully in the next little while, uh, it'll be done. I only had a chance to read the first volume in prep for this podcast, but my sons have insisted I read the next uh, seven so that we can talk about it all because <laughs> they, they were trying to talk about it. And then one of them would keep going like, no, that's a spoiler. Don't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's, that was my experience was uh, I, I thought, oh, this will be a, a, a few you know, weeks of reading material, you know, they'll take their time. No, they just burn straight through these things. It, <laughs> like, it caught their imagination. That 50 bucks lasted about one hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have young readers, listeners, I definitely recommend uh, this book. I knew um, 
the creator Kazu Kibuishi's art from uh, Flight. Have you read any of those graphic novels? Uh, no, I, I did just the tiniest bit of research and saw that that was actually a thing, but but I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Th- so those are anthology series of lots of uh, like, I, I only have the first volume and I read it fairly recently. I want to say there were like probably 20 different stories in there from lots of different comic, like each one was from a different comic creator, but he edited the volume and he had one story in there. Um, and it, it was all just geared around the theme of flight. Uh, hmm. So as long as the story had something to do with the idea of flight, then it, it could be included in there. And there were so many different art styles, but I, I still remember seeing his art style like, oh, I, I kind of like this. It's kind of a um, a cartoony, but not, you know how like there's been a recent wave of like very angular, uh, for me, like less aesthetically appealing animation yes. has kind of taken hold with Cartoon mm-hmm. Network and others. Um, this feels more like the the smooth rounded animation style of like mm-hmm. a 90s Disney uh, feel, at least to me, is kind of how I would describe it. And it's just pleasant <laughs> you know it just it, it looks so clean and professional and and nice like like aesthetically i just like looking at the way he draws figures yeah i agree with you 100 percent. all right some trivia about amulet this is the first graphic novel in what will be a nine volume series the stonekeeper was published in 2008 seven more graphic novels in the series have been published it was about one per year for the first four and then it became every other year the ninth and reportedly final uh volume will be published this year a film adaptation has been in works for years, but I could find no current news <laughs> of what is happening. So years ago, Will Smith and his production company optioned it for his children, Willow and Jaden Smith, to star in when they were, you know. <laughs> They're a little probably a little too yeah. old for that now. <laughs> yeah, they, they've aged out of those roles. Uh, then uh, after his option on it lapsed, Fox bought it. And then Disney bought Fox and no one knows what's happening to anything that was optioned for a Fox movie. Oh, so no idea where, where this is going, but I'm assuming if nothing has changed that Disney now owns the rights because they bought Fox from the last information I could find. I don't know why I've suddenly become super cynical about film adaptations of like great books, but (laughs) I'm really fine with there not being a film version of this. (laughs) So I, I, uh, I'm teaching a, a, a mouse this semester, like a class mm-hmm. just about the graphic novel mouse, which what a sem- what, what a time of life to be teaching mouse, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, I had to cancel like a whole day lecture and just say, OK, let's just talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and and by the way, like here's here's a, you know, a 10 minute interview with our speaker from this morning that was on CNN. So let's watch that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but that's a graphic novel that um, within the text, he like talks about like. I've been I've had offers for adaptations and I don't I don't want this story to be adapted into any other medium. And I asked my students, like, can you imagine this story in another medium? And universally, it's like, no, yeah. <laughs> this, this has to be just to be this graphic novel. It would feel so wrong. And anything else It's just the perfect marriage. And because Amulet's art style is is much cartoonier than Art Spiegelman's, uh, you know, angular style that he uses for, mm-hmm. for Mouse. I like you can envision this as an animated film immediately. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a way that like mouse doesn't give me that kind of like dread of like, oh, no, this this just has to be this ink on this page. And I don't see this ever being in motion. That would feel weird. But I still agree with what you're saying that uh, it, it's kind of perfect as is. So do we need an adaptation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it. I guess I can envision this as an animated film. I mean, it's essentially an animated film already. <laughs> It kind of feels like that. 
um, in the way that I think uh, like a Miyazaki film uh, can easily be turned into a graphic novel um, or I don't know. I, I, it, it doesn't, it doesn't look exactly like anime, but I, I feel like there's a, it, it definitely lends itself to that, but don't let's don't do a, a live action film of this. I feel like the, I've just seen too many bad live action adaptations of great of great books, and 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 I don't think we need them anymore. Not for um, a while. Yeah, I I think if this was to be adapted, it feels like it should be animated, right? <laughs> That's but I, when I saw it was an option for a live action adaptation, I'm like, ah, I don't I don't see that one as much. Yeah, I don't either. Before we move on, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media we've been consuming. We're not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast, and we also give updates on our fantasy box office, such as it is. All patrons support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the summary, which is a mercifully quick summary in this instance. Uh, so much of this is just like luscious art that I like looking at. Um, but the the story or the narrative was pretty straightforward. So we open with David Hayes, his wife Karen, and their daughter Emily in a car traveling to pick up Emily's brother Navin. There is an accident and the car is teetering on the edge of a cliff. Karen and Emily get out, but David is trapped. Karen holds David's hand and he tells her she has to let go so she can take care of the kids as the car falls over the edge. We jump ahead in time to Karen, Emily, and Navin moving into an old home that her grandpa, that Karen's grandpa, had owned in a small rural town. The house seems to have been abandoned for some time, and they spend days cleaning it. While cleaning, Emily finds a necklace with an amulet behind a hidden compartment in her great-grandpa's old library. Classic, classic moment in these stories. I love it when they're in an old library and, and yeah. something gets discovered. Um, Emily puts on the necklace. That night, Karen is kidnapped by a Lovecraftian monster with lots of tentacles. She's pulled into a stra- uh, uh, pulled through a strange portal that is in the basement. Emily and Navin follow her. Uh, they enter a world that is strange and dangerous, but a robot comes and leads them to a house. A pink rabbit jumps out of the robot and takes them to meet their great-grandfather, Silas, Charnin. Silas has a group of robots that help him out. He has a brief conversation with Emily, and then he dies. A voice in the amulet tells her to accept its power so that she can save her mother. Navin thinks the voice is bad news, but Emily wants to save mom, so she accepts. The robots guide them to uh, guide them in hunting down the creature that took Karen. They try to stop the creature, but it doesn't go great. Then an elf-like man shows up and kills the creature, releasing Karen. Now, it may sound like this is like, oh, Here's a mentor figure. This guy is uh, just reeking of bad news. <laughs> all, all about. Um, uh, at this point, Emily uses her amulet to overwhelm this man, uh, who again, major villain vibes. And she rescues her mom, but her mom has been poisoned. After returning to the great-grandfather's house, the robots say they need to travel to a nearby city for a cure. However, they crashed the only plane that they had. Uh, so what can they do to travel? And at this point, the entire house turns into a giant walking robot and enter and starts heading off. And that was one of my favorite sequences. This house turning into a robot. Yeah, I agree. Just fantastic. Rendered so beautifully. The yeah. end. The end of volume one. Cool. Like I said, fairly quick uh, story here where like we do get some beats of action. Like the mom is in peril and the mom has been rescued, but is still in peril. Uh, but definitely you feel like this is a chapter in a larger story rather than a complete story in and of itself. Mm-hmm. What is your takeaway from amulet, the stonekeeper Todd? So 
there's something really whimsical about the way that this that this thing is is put together. Um, in some ways, it's not really that original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the dad dies, they go to the old family house that's got a secret. Yeah. There's a secret there. People say it's haunted. There are no end. There is no end of the stories that have a setup that looks just like this. They're exploring in the house. They find something magical. Uh, they you know, they find some secret door. It takes them to a place. Oh, and now we're in a new world. Like who could have imagined that this <laughs> this would happen? It is not super original. Yeah. Um. So kind of setting that part aside. Um. The things that I really like about this are, as we've mentioned, the art is just gorgeous, and um, it, it, you know there there are there are lots of uh, of of panels that are helping to move the story along. And every once in a while, there's like a full page that's just kind of jaw dropping, <laughs> beautiful. Like when they when they see the house for the first time, that the, the not the original house, but the the grandpa's house that's in the that's in the magic land. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful. Yeah, and you think somebody took a lot of time and a lot of care to just make this look really nice, and I love that. And the other thing that I love is um, it feels so. The art style feels very mature. I think. Um, but the story feels like it was written by a child and i don't and i don't mean that in a like in a derogatory way but there's something kind of like i said like whimsical and um it just doesn't it so for example they go into this place this kind of scary robot looking trench coat thing shows up and uh, it's very sinister. And then it turns out when they get back to the house and this thing uh, like takes off the trench coat and it turns out that it's this like super cute pink bunny that has been inside of kind of a robot housing with these goggles and this hat and stuff. And And you're like, Oh, bunny think more like tricks rabbit than actual woodland creature. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the, the the robots. I mean, none of it makes any sense. It's not. It, it's We're not, not designed to make a lot of sense. Like, a like world, at least at this point. It's just super playful, and it really feels like you're in a child's imagination. That's going, yeah. And then this this monster comes and eats the mom, but the mom's totally fine. She's just inside, and there's these big holes, and the mom can stick her arm out the hole and say, help, save me, and then the kids know that she's still okay. <laughs> but I like it. It feels uh, it feels childlike in, in a way that I find charming. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not the most sophisticated story that I've ever read, and I don't mind that at all. I yeah. think it's why the kids really love it because it's, I think it's a reflection of a kind of, uh, of childlike view of the world that they find appealing. And I do too. Yeah. I mean, th- this basic premise, it's Alice in Wonderland. It's Chronicles of Narnia. It is an unpublished middle grade novel that I've written a full draft of. 
<laughs> it is something that we can find many, many examples of, but it's all about the execution. Uh, you know, how how is the story being told, which is the truth of so many stories that you, you can find analogs for most stories that we read now. You can think of some something else that came before that is somewhat similar or you're taking A plus B and, and trying to get something new here. And this has all those elements that we can kind of you know, point to like cute robots, uh, you know, Lovecraftian creatures, like I referenced, uh, kids entering a portal. It, it, and you don't always see those things together, but here they are together. But it's so much of it is in the presentation of his art style is what makes it just charming. And, and like you said, like something my kids just burned through. Yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm being talked down to, mm-hmm. uh, but it definitely feels like it. it's written for a middle grade audience. Y- yeah, but but again, not in a way that you'd be like, well, I just can't stand that. It's so, it, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know what the word is, naive or uh, simplistic. Or... Yeah, I mean, I've read books before where I think, okay, I, I'm totally fine not continuing this story. <laughs> like, this is my kid's bedtime story, and like, oh, I did a chapter. Okay, well, you take the next chapter. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is one where I'd be like, oh, okay, let's keep going. Let's. I really like it. I, I was listening this morning, so I'm 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 listening on Audible to this book that's called The Master and His Emissary. Do you, uh, do you know this book? I am not familiar. It's by a guy named Ian McGilchrist, and he is both a neuroscientist and a philosopher, like a literature professor guy that then went and got degrees in neuroscience. As super, super smart. So the f- whole first half of the book is about the way that our brains work. And then the second half of the book is about the history of Western culture kind of through the lens of the way that our, our brains actually work. Okay, my wife it's is a, a cognitive psychologist, so this feels like it's blending our two. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. Um, but uh, he was talking about the idea of originality. And he said, uh, he said, there's two forms, it's kind of two ways that we can try for originality. One is to create something that's, that, that's completely new, which as humans, we're just not really very good at (laughs) (laughs) to create something that's completely wholly new. Uh, it just really never happens. Um, but he said, what, if you you know you think about the word original, it's about getting back to origins, and that things that are uh, that are really original uh, are things that are able to get kind of cut through, like cut through the cruft and get back to something that feels like it's close to the origins, and there's something about the kind of this this childlike whimsy in this book that feels close to something original to me, mm-hmm. not because, because he's thought of something that nobody's ever thought of before, but just because in the way that it's executed, uh, it feels close to the child that's in, that's inside of me still. I think. Yeah. No, I like that. Um, and, and I think when it comes to, you know, entertainment, we tend to want stuff that, feels familiar but new right yeah uh like if it is truly original and it's like super avant-garde and just trying to break all the boundaries like a lot of stuff that stuff does not go mainstream like it just gets rejected uh and if it's too much exactly like what we've seen somewhere else then it gets rejected because it's derivative and like oh well that's just right. a ripoff so we want to find that balancing point of familiar but unique <laughs> and yeah 
And I think and I, this, you know, this has all those elements that we can kind of say, oh, this and that and that. And yes, it's both how they're being put together is not, you know, uh, different enough from anything that came before that it works. But but so much of it is also just the the tone and the the, the art style. I think is what makes it work. Yeah, and I and I should I should mention that in some ways I'm, I mean, if anybody is familiar with with Miguel Chris book, uh, I am I understand that I am at least partially intentionally uh, misreading <laughs> part of what he says. He's he, when he talks about um, like originality as the the search for the new, um, he's taking stabs actually at fantasy. Mm-hmm. And he's writing um, kind of in defense of of the romantic poets mm-hmm. who were all about like getting into nature and describing the way that the 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 little water droplet hangs on the edge of the leaf and you know and and that's like everybody's seen what it looks what what a a, a water droplet looks like on a leaf but somehow these romantic poets were able to capture something that takes us back to that in a way that um, that the enlightenment with its kind of uh, cold, detached, uh, objective viewpoint was not able to do. I think it's interesting that this is this work of fantasy that in some ways I think is is striving for some kind of uh, like originality in, in creating something new, these interesting characters or uh, interesting um, creatures. But in the end, the thing that I find most appealing about this is that I just feel like it uh, it reaches something inside of me that is, uh, you know, kind of close to my origins. It's very imaginative, and and I like that. Yeah, and I think another thing that it does successfully is that there's some themes that I think are present, but not so explicit uh, that, like, when you if. I'm looking for them. I think I find them. I don't know that my kids would find them. So after um, the parents have this accident and the dad dies and uh, there's a moment where like Emily is yelling like mom, dad's stuck. And uh, the mom gives, you know, is holding his hand and he's saying, I can't move. And then he says, you have to let go. You need to look after Emily. You have to let go. And the mom lets go. And like, there's this two panel sequence of the hands letting go and then the car falling. And, then you move forward and there you, there's some tension between Emily and the mom that's never like really made explicit, mm-hmm. you know, about like, does she blame her, her mom for her dad's death or, you know, is this if dad was here, mom? we wouldn't be in this house, yeah. but, mm-hmm. but there's some tension there that that's happening. And then after the mom is captured by this Lovecraftian type creature, there's a moment during the rescue sequence where Emily is starting to pull the mom out of the monster. And, um, then the, uh, they're holding hands in much the same way. Exactly uh, the same way. Yeah. Yes. And, and then like the mom says, I can't move. And then she says, Emily, please, please go. You like you, she says, you need to go help your brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and that's kind of parallelism is absolutely there. And I think most readers, any adult readers would catch it, but uh, you know, it's not driven beaten over the head that, Oh, this girl is mad at her mom, you know, in a, in a way that might make, you know, younger readers maybe feel uncomfortable, but there's still acknowledgement that there would be some, emotional tension <laughs> that would hang over this family that is very difficult to resolve. And I think that parallelism is setting up some resolution of that. Yeah. That opening scene with the car, it's really, it's really beautifully done. And it's I gut-wrenching. Think- and I, like, I, so I had read that before I gave it to my kids. I said, I'm going to tell you in the first few pages, the dad dies and then mm-hmm. it's going to get on with the rest of the story. You need to know, <laughs> you know, before yeah. you do this. Cause it's uh, like, 
you feel some stuff <laughs> as yeah, you do. as they do and and uh he's not gonna like hide the the, the emotions that are on the on the characters faces mm-hmm. i mean it's it's a middle grade book but that's that's a rough opening <laughs> yeah it is <laughs> you know, for it um but i think it's also i'm a firm advocate that middle grade books should start to have some of those rough openings <laughs> and yeah. deal with some of these issues in the uh the neil game and emotional inoculation style yes yeah uh is there anything about these particular characters? So I, th- I think we've acknowledged quite a bit the art and the tone and uh, presentation that is a real strength of this book. Are there is there anything about these characters that stands out for you? So there's this um, there's this one scene. So they get to the house, and the mom says, "Okay, guys, we're gonna have to clean up this house because it's a big mess." And um, I'm just pulling it up here. So. <laughs> She says, oh, uh, you know, we're going to have to do some work here. And she opens the door. She says, my goodness, this home is going to require a lot of love. And then you can tell that she's exhausted and there's kind of some tension here. And then and then the, on the next page, there's this, this great kind of hero shot. We're looking at them uh, from behind and below as they're looking at, at this big house and they've got um, like bandanas tied onto their heads. They've got brooms and stuff. And mom says, you ready? And they say, ready when you are mom. And the kid says, bring it on. And then they say, charge. <laughs> they Like chase into this house and uh, you know, to go clean it. And I just, I love that. I think it says something about these characters and this family, um, the way that they take on challenges that, um, that sets it up so that when, when they're in this magical setting, it feels, uh, it feels real to to the character of of Emily mm-hmm. to be like, yeah, let's do it, you know, charge right in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're we just, we're gonna charge right in. What? There's a plane. We have to fly the plane through this uh, through this uh, tunnel with all these tentacles that are trying to get us. Yeah, all right. Uh, probably my little brother should do it because he's better at video games than me. <laughs> But let's, yeah, let's just go for it, you know? And um, and we've seen that already, that the mom has taught them to face challenges like this. Let's do it. You know, we'll strap on our on our uh, little bandanas. On, as the as Navin says. <laughs> yep, and we'll, and we'll uh, yep, and bring it on. And I think that that says something cool about her, and then we see that same kind of bring it on attitude as she's chasing her mom through this really wild, uh, and dangerous world that they find themselves in. Yeah, I like that. I had not made that connection, but as soon as I like turned to it, I'm like, oh, this is actually setting. Okay. And then you just <laughs> exactly what I was thinking <laughs> as you, uh, but I had not caught that at all um, in, in the, in the, in the, in my read through that, you know, there's a connection between this moment of parenting about like, okay, we've got a real challenge here and how they're going to approach it and how they problem solve um, as, wilder and wilder problems start to present themselves to them another thing i will say about like the idea of this as an adaptation though like uh after they say charge there's like a seven panel sequence of them all cleaning different parts of the house and then it shifts to emily climbing the stairs to me that was like i could hear a musical montage happening <laughs> in my head oh yeah as i looked at those panels of you know the the broom and it's got all the onomatopoeia sounds uh you know uh-huh. the, the the shutter being banged open and dust and the sponge across the countertop yeah squeak you know all these things um and there's something that's um impressive in 
that, uh, you know, a whole bunch of panels of kids cleaning isn't exciting, <laughs> but there's a sense of energy to how these still images are being presented to us. And the angles yeah. that he's chosen for each one does give us almost a sense of movement uh, that he's really using the comic book medium to its strengths uh, there. Yeah, totally. The one thing that I would add just about that, the, this idea of taking on challenge, um, there's a guy, his name is Kevin Majors. He's a psychiatrist at Harvard. And he has a uh, his website is called um, Optimal Work. And there's a podcast that's associated with it. And his specialty is work and helping people to kind of get the most out of work, but not in terms of productivity, but more in terms of kind of being a psychologically healthy and happy person. <laughs> um, and he's chosen work because, because we just spend a lot of time working. And uh, for him, um, this idea of being willing to take on challenges to see uh, to see challenges as opportunities for growth and not uh, as threats um, is like one of the real keys to psychological health. So he talks about, um, he'll say things like, you need to lean into the challenges. Um, you tell the challenges. He'll even say things like, you just have to tell your challenges, bring it on. Like, let's do this because it's <laughs> really good for you. And um, and so this is just another example of literature kind of being ahead of the curve <laughs> uh, with, you know, science will come along and say, you know, it's actually really good to be able to be willing to take on challenges and lean into them. It's like, yeah, we've been reading stories that have been telling us that for a <laughs> super long time. <laughs> In fact, uh, any story where people aren't doing that is going to, things are not going to turn out well for them. But um, I thought it was cool to just kind of see that uh, really um, kind of made explicit in a way that doesn't feel like um like telling don't showing right so we we say a lot in in art and film and even in literature show don't tell so don't just tell me oh she's really brave and resilient and she likes challenges but just show me how she faces a challenge and that's exactly what they do here and and it turns out that it's telling us something that's really important about her character and makes the rest of the story make a lot of sense. The fact that she just she just like pell mell, she's going after this thing. She's she's gonna go get her mom, uh, no matter what happens. And that's because her mom taught her how to face a challenge, and that's cool. Yeah, I do like that a lot. I also like the fact that um, you know, when we get these narratives about a child character entering strange world often there's like a chosen one aspect to it there's no sense of that per se at least in this volume uh to her and also there's not a sense of uh even as we're saying like she's she's been like emotionally and uh like her worldview has prepared her to take action in the in the face of absurdity uh that's the face when when she needs to go rescue her mom she's gonna find a way to go rescue her mom that we've established but it's not like she's suddenly super competent and knows exactly what to do and uh, is, is able to take on every challenge, even to the point where at least in this first volume, there's some choices she makes where it's like, I don't know if that was the right choice. Like the voice from the amulet, like, is that really a good voice that's guiding her <laughs> right now? And, and she's like, uh, I needed to say my mom. So I'm going to listen to it. And the brother's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And as readers were left with a, I don't know about this voice in the amulet in volume yeah. one, at least uh, what I'm supposed to make of it. And yeah, 
it's, I think there's, it's, he's not there an infallible, some, you know, character there. There is some aspect of, I mean, we have to, we have to keep the story going. So, mm-hmm. you know, she, so she they, and her brother, they do jump in the plane. The brother just flies it. You know, there, there's some are, aspect they, of. They are capable of holding onto mushroom stalks as they float down like a boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and she and you know the the grandpa says oh i've been waiting so long for you and now the amulet is yours and, and now all these robots are going to follow you and so there there is kind of some of this uh kind of hand wavy we've got to get this story going and so so the robots are all here to help you and gu- slash guide you slash aid you yeah <laughs> yeah but but i think because of of what we know about her character even from that that short little seen in the beginning um with the 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 cleaning of the house it tells us listen this is she's not like a she's not some scared shaky little leaf she's tough she knows how to do hard stuff uh she's willing to take on a challenge and so i think it helps us to not uh get hung up on the fact that you know they're like flying around on mushroom (laughs) stocks and and (laughs) Which some of that you just kind of hand wave with like magical world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's and, fine. And we, we don't worry too much about that. Yeah, I think I think what we know about her character helps us to uh, to process more seamlessly kind of the the amazing stuff that she does later on. Mm-hmm. Where if we had seen her and she was like, so you know the beginning of um, Spirited Away yeah. and Chihiro, she's like complaining all the time and she's worried about everything she's kind of scared and oh dad we shouldn't go this way and you couldn't you couldn't have that character suddenly in in a process of you know 10 pages doing the things that emily is doing in this in this story chihiro has to have a different kind of journey that where her development is just different than emily's is here it's a different starting point yeah absolutely and and both stories work because the because the storytellers take the time in the beginning to say this is where this character is now and now their actions will make sense later because of what we know about them from the beginning and you couldn't take Chihiro and throw her into this story and have her do the same things it would feel weird Mm -hmm. and just like you couldn't take Emily from this story and put her in spirited away and, and then have all her curling up into a ball have her curling up into a ball because it wouldn't feel authentic to her mm-hmm. so I, I just think it's awesome that you can in such a short uh, amount of time or you know space on a page develop a character enough to let us know this character would work in some kinds of stories and not work in other kinds of stories and this is her story and yeah. and it fits and that starting moment of you know the, the version of her that we see with the cleaning it's a perfectly valid and uh not unexpected challenge for a girl of her age to face and the way she approaches is what we're learning about her then when yeah. she faces this wild <laughs> world and uh you know the horror of her mom being swallowed by this by this tentacle monster we're already prepped as an audience to accept that she's gonna do whatever it takes to go get mom absolutely um, but it, it, if I think if we had started with the mom being taken without some of that setup, it would be like, who is this kid? Yeah. <laughs> um, of the uh, the side characters that we have, were there any that stood out for you? <laughs> Not really. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I, I think the little bunny is cute. Yes, uh, I was gonna say that. And and the other robots, 
there's some personality like, like these robots are not automatons that are all just like yes master uh, you know or anything like that they all have unique personalities but with the amount that we had them yet i don't know that i could label any of them by name or exactly what the personality is i think their faces are expressive enough when i look at them i could tell that one's the grump you know that sort of thing yeah the well there's the grumpy one that but and again this is where to me it feels um maybe most i don't know most but it definitely feels childlike in in that these robots they don't really behave like robots in any recognizable way they could be <laughs> squirrels or they could be monkeys or they could be people uh it does the fact that they're robots is is totally irrelevant except that they were you know invented by her great grandfather but uh but they act in every way as if they were just totally sentient and they don't act in any, and in any way robot. And, you know <laughs> it, it, it's just like uh you know cute helper uh in this case they have to be robots i mean if you were gonna make a robot it i guess this goes you know the it's like Star Wars, like C-3PO. Like, why would you program a robot that is as fastidious and fussy <laughs> and fussy as C-3PO? Like, why would you do that on purpose? Uh, I don't get it. And and why do they even have to talk to each other anyway? Isn't there some more, uh, more efficient way of communicating between robots than actually using, like, regular words? And why do why do the why do the battle droids have to carry guns? Why don't they just have guns built into them? And why, you know, like, I mean, none of it makes really makes any sense Except if you think I about it. I will tell it. you, it, it all works for kids, and that's what you know. Star Wars is a story for kids. I think sometimes adult fans forget that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that's kids. exactly what's going on here. Is this yeah. is a story written for kids, and so it's cool that there's this little robot character the, and the they're kind of doing their thing, that, but, or the buddy that jumps out of the the bigger, more intimidating looking robot. Right. That moment is pretty cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like it when the bunny jumps out of the big robot uh, trench coat suit. That's cool. <laughs> and the fact that it's a trench coat is so perfect. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> like but, it's a robot in a trench coat with a bunny rabbit in it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as, you know, those characters as characters, um, they, they don't really stand out to me uh, or stick with me in any meaningful yeah. way. And they may, as the story goes on, you know, I'm probably... Mm-hmm balling my eyes out when grumpy robot gets killed in volume seven but for now i'm i'm holding <laughs> and I, I feel a little bit similarly where for, for the other human characters where like the mom is there as a story you know she's a MacGuffin. <laughs> she's not uh yes the way that she, we can tell she's taught emily is cool but mm-hmm. as far as like what do i know about her mom in terms of her personality or other things there's not yeah. a ton that's present and also uh with her brother navin it almost seems like he's there um as uh, like a, a counter voice at, at times like you know to be the one to say uh, should you really be listening to the strange voice coming from the magical stone yeah sound? <laughs> but as far as uh his personality i i'm not there yet which this story is emily's story right now so i, sure. I don't I, i'm not pointing that out as a weakness and like you said i will be shocked if like i read the next three volumes that i don't have a much better sense of who navin is or like he has his own moments or or you know a b plot that happens in one of the books or something like that. yeah and there is that interesting uh you know, level of, I don't know if sophistication is, is, is too big a word for, for what's happening here. But the thing that is happening with the amulet, when Emma telling her to do stuff. And at first it's like super helpful. 
And then it, it kind of takes a turn in probably the last third or quarter of this of this volume where you start to kind of doubt and go, oh, I don't know if that thing is really – I wonder if the, it's – um. do you know uh, – have you watched these Olaf uh, things on Disney Plus? I have when, children. I have. When Olaf does the Disney stories, the recaps. yeah, where he recaps. Oh my gosh, those movie. things are super funny, and my son has them all memorized. But the one when it's uh, Ariel and the Little Mermaid, it's yeah. just I don't want to be half a fish anymore. You'll be half a fish, and you'll like it, young lady. And then, and then the and then the Octa Lady comes along, and she says something like, "You know, I give you your voice, or I'll turn you into an emaciated shrimp." <laughs> And Ariel goes, I'm sure you have my best interests at heart. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a moment here in the story when I think, I don't know if that amulet has her best interests at heart, but it's not quite as obvious as uh, as it is in uh, in Little Mermaid. And so there is this kind of moment of doubt where you go, what is really going on here? And I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that so much of this. Um, this book is actually, it, it feels like it's giving us a taste of the world, not mm-hmm. showing us everything. Uh, and, and there's enough of a sense that there's more to this world that we're going to be learning as, as we move forward, uh, you know, that there is a master plan, uh, mm-hmm. for, for where the story is going to go and also how this world's going to be presented to us. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts where we both said like the last page where, well, well it's like the last sequence where the house becomes this giant walking robot. Yeah, it's Hal's moving castle, right? And there's a two page or two page spread at the end of it, like entering a valley. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, with all these giant rocks around it, and it almost looks like you know the uh, the Friedrich painting of uh, Wander Above the Sea Fog. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I love that. That's one of my most favorite paintings. Yeah, it's hanging in my office. It's hanging behind me right oh, now. Oh, do you know what? That's so interesting because uh, we have these people that come by, and uh, well, they used to before pandemic, they would sell posters at the college, and that was the next one on my list to get to put in my office. <laughs> I have. Um, uh, the Great Wave, Kanagawa's Great Wave, Great Wave is on, is on my office wall right now, but Absolutely. that's the next one that I want to put on there. Um, but but so we have like the, it sounds so weird to say like this giant like like uh a Power Ranger Megazord house <laughs> has risen up and is standing here in front of this, and both of us were like, oh, that's a really evocative image, or you know something about that, like just really that's really beautiful, so well. What is it about it that works? Because it's so strange when you try and describe it out loud. Um, well, I mean, you've, you've touched on, on part of it. The, the reason why the wanderer on the, the, above the sea of fog, I mean, that's to me, that's the great, uh, image of romanticism. Yes. Yeah. It's, and it's what I put on the first slide of my lecture about romanticism. We're talking about it. And it's what I, and it's what, it's what I show when I teach romanticism as well. And this idea of, um, being open to the unknown. Uh, which is which is not what the, the so the enlightenment comes before romanticism the enlightened the the enlightenment was all about like uh this detached we can just observe the world and we can and understand it cool and, and distant in yeah a lot of and ways. everything everything makes sense and there's no mystery in the world just you know the only things we don't know are just the stuff we haven't figured out but eventually we'll just figure it all out and romanticism says hold on <laughs> <laughs> there are some there are some limits to what uh to what human reason 
is capable of and there are other ways of knowing things and and those ways are often mysterious and require uh, us to be engaged with the world in a way that's different and that and, and in a way that is um i mean ian mcgilchrist would say embodied um that where we're we're engaging our emotions uh, and our bodies in a way that the enlightenment would say is not necessary. It's just your mm-hmm. brain. Um, and when I think about, you know, standing on the the edge of the sea of fog, there's that tiny voice inside of you. That's like telling you to jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, like and that, you that image feel alive. You feel really, is, really alive. Is there's both the sense of power and helplessness at the same time. Uh, yeah. you know, where, where it feels almost like, you know, a conqueror surveying, what they've come, but also a feeling of insignificance. Like this is so much bigger than you. And yes, if you take a step forward, you have died. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 but also, and I was just listening to this this morning while I was running and listening to this, this master and his emissary book, which is super interesting. <laughs> it's such a good book and is really changing the way that I think about a lot of things, but he talks about the feeling of the sublime. And he says, the interesting thing about the feeling of the sublime, and this is, this is, Uh, written by lots of romantic writers, especially romantic poets, Mm -hmm. is that in that moment, rather than feeling small, you actually feel like you're, like you're increased in a way um, in, in, and, and connected with something grand. And, and that's a really powerful feeling. Mm-hmm. That we think about, oh, you know, you look at the big landscape paintings and the little tiny humans, and we say, oh, look at how how tiny we feel. But in reality, the 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 emotion uh, that they were going for was to feel not to feel tiny and insignificant, but to feel connected to something vast mm-hmm. and powerful, which is not exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I think the sublime is about so many, like a constellation of feelings simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So when I see this, I mean, there, there's something about like Iron Giant mm-hmm. in this. There's something super romantic. It looks like, like Northern Europe, which is where romanticism comes from. Germany or Scandinavia, something, these, these really craggy mountains, this beautiful valley. It's all foggy. Um, there's all this potential and also mystery ahead of them. Uh, it also harkens, I really think, to Miyazaki and like Howl's Moving Castle, which it, it, it looks in a lot of ways kind of like. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot. I, I think there's a lot there. Uh, it is really a beautiful image and a great way to end this first volume and to and to let you know something really cool is going <laughs> there's a lot of adventure waiting out in that fog on the, on the other side of that Valley. Yeah. I love that. Um, and I think it also captures, like I, I said, it's a weird sci-fi magical world and mm-hmm. it feels a little like folkloric, like Baba Yaga's, you know, house on, on jiggy legs, but also like sci-fi, like, uh, you know, the, the robots that fight kaiju in, in Japanese films or Iron uh-huh. Giant or, you know, or things like this. And it's, it's both. It, 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 it like, is. is capturing the, the feeling of, of simultaneous genres. Well, um, yeah. I mean, when a kid sits down to play, they don't go, okay, all right. So is this hard sci-fi? Is this like a, we kind of medium hard sci-fi? Well, what kind of rules are we allowing here? That's not what here. they, that's not how kids play. 
It's like, and then Iron Man shows up. Yeah. <laughs> and a lightsaber. And then they like grab their sister's <laughs> doll and then, and then Barbie shows up and Barbie does this. And like, who cares? Mm-hmm. It's just a beautiful, fun, imaginative world. And so, yeah, the little, the cute little bunny can come out of the giant robot suit and, and, and there can be this kind of sinister, like dark elf. Mm-hmm who is getting shot by like 1960s looking laser guns. Yeah, well, and it's, it's also okay. like, like, it looks like a world war one by play kind of thing. It's right. Like- yeah. It looks like Howard Hughes was there <laughs> designing planes to fight against the dark elves. And it's all just this mishmash of, uh, of things that absolutely exist in the imagination of kids and kids don't, make rules about well only certain things can are are, are allowed into into this imaginative space mm-hmm. when they play they just play and what they play with whatever's available to them all right todd i have enjoyed this conversation a lot do you have any final thoughts about amulet before we wrap up i'm glad that i got to read this i would <laughs> i always say oh man i'd love to finish uh the <laughs> The rest of these books, I know my son would love it. He was, uh, he saw immediately when he saw that I was reading them. He this this book, he just curled up next to me and was reading along. And then I had to sit it down for a second. Like five minutes later, he's like fifty pages ahead. <laughs> uh, he just loves it, and 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 for good reason. It's really a, a cool a cool story. It really is, uh, and. Um, I feel like kind of like what you said I, with this podcast. So, so often I'm like, I'm definitely gonna read the next one. And then it's like six months later, it's like, Oh, I need to go do that. Um, but yeah. I do have the pressure of my kids wanting to talk about <laughs> the next volumes that I will probably be getting to this one sooner. Well, and you've got them in your house. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that, that also helps, uh, significantly, but like, uh, we did the, the first book, a book of time. It's like, Oh, I'm going to immediately go do the second one. And then I've had to do like 12 books for the podcast since then. And <laughs> I haven't yet done the second book in the wheel of time. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this discussion. Readers, if you're looking for a good all-ages family adventure story, I do recommend Amulet. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Dieter Raskin. Our producer, Andrew, is at this minute, and our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. So, shall I find the script? <laughs> I have. Okay, I closed it when I.